Welcome to another episode of Tell Me the Story. Uh, today we'll be breaking from our usual programming with the book of Genesis, and uh, I want to focus today on Paul's letter to Philemon, which is the last of the so-called pastoral letters, and the penultimate letter in the Pauline corpus, of course, the last being the epistle to the Hebrews. So a couple of notes on Philemon before we start. One, it's super short, so I'm just going to go through the whole thing and uh, talk about mainly where a lot of translations go wrong, I've noticed. Um, The main Bible that I read in English is the ESV, and really that's just due to convenience. Um, It's written really well, the English is really clear, and by and large it's... um, Typically considered more on the literal side with its translation, uh, but it's definitely one that's in the middle between uh, literal and uh, interpretive. So um, it's just, it's a classic Bible. I've always kind of used it that in the NIV. So that's why I use it, not for any other particular reason. I don't think it's, you know, really could be considered the best translation if uh, such a thing really exists. Of course, the best option always is the original language, um, but uh, s- since this is the the one that I use most often, this is the one that I see uh, most of the flaws. Um, so there's there's quite a few in here that I think are interpretive errors that people make. Uh, namely, people consider just traditionally that this letter was written during one of Paul's imprisonments. Um, there's a lot of debate as to which one it was. Um, some say it's it's one of the, the few that occur during the events of the Book of Acts. Some say it could have been later when he was imprisoned in Rome, and I think that that's the majority view. Um, but all that is really speculation. Um, one, I mean, we're assuming that the events of the book of Acts are uh, historical accounts. I think that's the first error. And the second error is uh, assuming that the traditions surrounding Paul in Rome are accurate uh, enough to uh, retroject onto the text. And, uh, you know, while, while all that stuff might be valid and historical, I mean, who knows? Um, I think that can di- distract us from what's going on with the text, and you're, you're essentially you're, you're, uh, putting in extra context that doesn't really need to be there. If we just have the text and just read it for what it is with the Greek in mind, and that's the main thing, as we'll see, then it doesn't need any of that context, and it doesn't need Paul to be physically in prison for this letter to make sense. Um, so we'll we'll talk about that right now, but r- right off the bat, the first line is, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. So this is the first instance where people would say that, oh, Paul's in prison now, uh, which it is an interesting switch on the typical line from Paul, which is Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, right? So it uses the word um, thulos, 
which is sometimes translated to servant, um, even though it's unambiguously the word slave in Greek. Um, But it is an interesting switch, but we can't just jump to conclusions. And part of the reason why that makes that confusing is because in the ESV, it says a prisoner for Jesus Christ. So it seems like he's in prison because he was preaching the gospel of Christ. In other words, he's imprisoned by a physical, a uh, earthly enemy, which I will argue is really the exact opposite of what's going on here. Um, because in the Greek, it's a lot more uh, clear. In the Greek, it says, Pavlos Desmios Christu Isu. So if you know your Greek, the Christu Isu is in what is called the genitive case. The ending of those two words are in the genitive. And the genitive means possession. So if I were to literally render that in English, it would not be a prisoner for Christ Jesus. It would be a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So Christ Jesus is doing the imprisonment. Paul is, uh, on the one hand, a slave of Jesus Christ, and here we see that he is a prisoner of Jesus Christ, bound by Jesus Christ. Okay, so it's important to hear that distinction just right off the bat. And I think that if we start with that as a, as a launch pad, then we can really see what the text of this letter is saying. And what's interesting is that the uh, King James actually translates it correctly. Here, let me, let me get it real fast. So the King James text says this, Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Right? So it has the correct, uh, the correct translation there. So it's been done before in the English, and I think part of the reason is that idea of Philemon specifically being written during a time that Paul was imprisoned is inherently you know, more of a modern idea in scholarship. And so that's where that idea kind of crept in to the assembly of translators who worked on the ESV, which wasn't present in the 16th and 17th centuries when the King James was translated. So kind of interesting, but let's move on now that we have that as a launch pad. So it says, Paul, a prisoner for Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so breaking down the names, I think that this is always important to do. Uh, not necessarily to make any other grand point as to what the names are doing, but just to tell you what a Greek person would hear 
when they heard these names because all these names are Greek. So uh, Pavlos, of course, Paul, uh, is actually Latin, but uh, it, it means um, the little one. It's from Paulus, the Latin word means the little one. Uh, Timotheos is Greek, and it means one who honors God. Philemon is also Greek, and it means um, one who is friendly or uh, kind, uh, something along those lines. Uh, of, of course, it comes from phileo, which um, means affection, you know, from uh, philosophia, right? The uh, friends or the lovers of wisdom, right? Uh, philanthropy, the lovers of humanity, right? So you can see that root word right there in Philemon. Then we have Apphia. Now, Apphia, there's a lot of debate about, uh, but the most convincing one I've seen is that it uh is a term of affection from classical Greek. So we're talking in the Homeric Greek, specifically the type of affection one would have for one's mother, which is fascinating. And then we've got archipus, which means the master horse rider, something to that effect, uh, because it's from archos, which means head or chief, it's the same root word where we get um, arhi, right, uh, which is typically the word for beginning or chief. We see it in the beginning of the Gospel of John, in arhia no logos, in the beginning was the word. Um, but it's also used to describe the highest position. So an archpriest is the highest priest, an archangel is the highest angel. You get the, uh, get the gist there. And it says that he's a soldier. So we have this imagery of captivity, of being bound, and we have this imagery of a Calvary man. So it reminds me of a lot of imagery in the New Testament, which details this proverbial battle that is waged by the slaves of Christ against not flesh and blood, but the powers and the principalities the real lords of this world, which for Paul's time, to put it bluntly and simply, the powers and the principalities are the Hellenistic forces, those philosophies, the philosophies of Plato, the Nechash in the Garden of Eden, Satanas, as he is known in the New Testament, those who pervert the truth, profess themselves to be wise, and become fools. So it says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, this is foundational because in Paul's system, in this scriptural system going back to the Old Testament, we believe in one God and one Lord. Okay? So the God is Father. He is paterfamilias in this Roman household. He has the supreme authority, and he is our supreme head. So there is no other God by which we worship, by which we call ourselves to obedience. There is no emperor who we call ourselves 
to obedience as the supreme head, because every emperor and every other god has their power from God the Father, God the Father of all men, of all nations. And likewise, our one Lord is Jesus Christ, who is his obedient, suffering son and slave. And Christ then becomes our slave master. He is the one who imprisons us because he brings us to the Father through his teaching, through his enslavement. Right? We are free from any other Lord, any other master on this planet. And we are now bound to the Lord, O Kyrios, to the Lord Jesus Christ, as opposed to any other Baal, which means Lord or Master or Husband. Right? We don't have any other Baal. We don't have any other Master or any other Husband. We have one Lord, one Lord that brings us to God the Father. So this is foundational, and it's important, and it's something that seems obvious to us because we just vaguely believe in monotheism, and that's all fine and good. But back then in the Roman society, this was just unheard of. The emperor and the god were essentially one and the same, And of course, you know, there was a whole pantheon of gods, but the emperor is your closest, just direct authority. But what the Christians are doing is they're saying that, no, our allegiance isn't to anything that you can see on this earth because it is all passing away. But what will not pass away are the words of God that throughout the the Torah, And the prophets and the writings speak of the ideal suffering servant who Paul says becomes enfleshed among us in the person and the teaching and the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ who represents functionally the entire message of the scriptures, breaks the curse of the Mosaic law by his death, by becoming a curse for us. And so now we are not bound to the death prescribed by the law. If we die and are reborn, in other words, baptized in his death and resurrection, And if we follow his ways and follow his statutes as he points us and directs us to the ways of God the Father, that is where soterios, salvation becoming made well, that is where that comes from and where that is accomplished. So this is a big deal. (laughs) And again, we we take it for granted because 
we think about everything dogmatically. We start with our dogma. We start with our doctrine. Um, but the scripture, you know, that becomes secondary for us. We see through those lens. And it's really hard not to. I mean, we're kind of trained to do that, uh, no matter what Christian background you're from. But it's important to try and exercise us to not think that way. So let's really quickly, let's read through the rest of the letter. Um, This episode is going a little bit longer than I thought, uh, but, you know, so be it. So it says, I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. So real fast, that word saint, agios, uh, ultimately, conceptually, comes from the Hebrew kadosh, which means taboo. So really, a saint is one who is set apart. So that's something that we need to recognize because that gets lost on modern hearers, especially those who don't have the Semitic context. Again, saint is not somebody who's elevated on a higher plane. Saint is not somebody who uh, is more uh, like God in some kind of vague way. A saint is just somebody who has been set apart because they are among the elect. They are children of God, right? They are the ones who respond to the call of the gospel and are doing the work of the gospel, who are set apart for that purpose. They have been made holy because they have been separated for that purpose. They are taboo, right? And the original meaning of the word Taboo doesn't mean bad. Taboo means that you can't just use it in any context whatsoever. Taboo means there's a set purpose for something, right? So one of the taboos of modern life, of course, is sex. Well, even in the most traditional sense, sex is not bad, you know, in a as a concept. Sex is good under certain parameters, under certain... Uh, guidelines, but it's not, you know, just to be used willy-nilly, right? That's a example I think that we can all understand and, and relate to. Um, so that's what taboo is. That's what it means. And so saint, ayos, kadosh, all those words have the connotation of being taboo, set apart for a purpose, just something to understand uh, what Paul is saying. And of course, when Paul uses the word saint, he's not using it in the way that uh, we might use it today to speak of Christians of the past who have been canonized by the church. He's speaking of the Christians that uh, are, you know, with him uh, in, you know, that, that, that are still alive contemporaneously. So important to understand there. Continuing on, and I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man, and now a prisoner also for Jesus Christ. So there again, is the bad translation. In the original Greek, it's a prisoner of Jesus Christ or being bound by Jesus Christ, being enslaved by Jesus Christ. All those things are valid. But uh, Desmios, of 
course, means a prisoner, and it uses the genitive grammatically. So this is important to understand. I appeal to you for my child, Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. So Onesimus means um, helpful or useful or beneficial, uh, which we will get a play on those words pretty soon. It says, formerly, this is in verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. So he was originally useless, and now he is useful. And onisimus means beneficial, right? So you can see the, the play that, the, that Paul is, is using here with the Greek. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment, again, of the gospel. Again, I, I, I want to <laughs> stress this, that the translators of the ESV are really doing this text poorly, because here, let me find verse 13 in the Greek. So it says, yeah, so it says, entis desmis to evangelio. In the imprisonment, in the bounds, in the chains, to evangelio, of the good news, of the gospel. Again, it uses that, the u ending, which is the genitive, that's possessive. And again, if we look at the King James, which does this text much more translative justice. It says this, Whom I would have retained with me, that in thy stead he might have ministered unto me in the bonds of the gospel. So it's the gospel that is bonding Paul, not some external force. It's the gospel, it's the message, it's Christ. Christ is binding him, and Christ's message is binding him. I want to make that very clear, because when we read a translation like the ESV, there's this third party involved, and it, it completely bastardizes the text. So that's why it's important, really critical, to have at least even just a broad understanding of the language, because I'm not... I'm not an expert. I'm not an expert in Greek, and I, and I don't claim to be. Right? I have a lot of learning to do. But even knowing just basic grammar, I can see right through that. And as proof of my convictions, the King James Bible does it correctly. So, important to understand. But, continuing on. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent, in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, 
as a beloved brother. So again, bond servant, that's the uh, sissy way of uh, saying dulos, which is slave. Again, it, it really, these modern English American translations are terribly afraid of the word slave. But uh, yeah, it's, it's rather ridiculous, actually. So, again, the original word there is dulos. Especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me, for I am hoping that through your prayers I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner, in Christ Jesus, sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Damas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Okay, so what's going on here? Well, Paul is appealing to Philemon to release his slave so that he may become a slave of Jesus Christ of the gospel. All too often, this text gets read as Paul just freeing Onesimus to freely become a Christian or something to that effect and to be freed from the bonds of being a slave and, uh, again, just to, in a vague sense, be free. But here's the deal. The gospel doesn't bring you to freedom in the sense that we Americans think of it. To be freed from the bondage of one servant is to be put into bondage of another servant. Because ultimate sovereignty resides with God. It's a side effect of our modern, postmodern thinking, rather, that we have complete freedom, not only in our own life, to make our own decisions and all of that stuff, but we even have this sense that we have a freedom to decide what is true, right? That's what postmodernism is, where we feel that, you know, uh, something is true to me, something is true to you, and, you know, it can be whatever the heck you think it is or what what, what you want it to be, that, that you can use your imagination to mold your own sense of truth. But that is that is uh, Hellenism to the <laughs> to the most absurd degree, really. No, there really is, as far as the gospel is concerned, there really is no sense of freedom because there is a supreme melech. There is a supreme owner. That's what the Hebrew word melech, king, 
That's what melech means. It means owner. God owns everything. There is no freedom. And if you don't want to be God's slave, he won't force you. But if you are not God's slave, you have to be a slave of something. And ultimately, that is to be a slave of death. A slave of the, uh, in Paul's time, would be the Hellenistic forces that are still alive and well today in our culture. So Onesimus, the beneficial one, who was beneficial to his master as a slave, becomes beneficial to the gospel of Jesus Christ by becoming Jesus' slave, as Paul is Jesus' slave and Jesus' prisoner. That's another point, too. To be freed from the prison of men and of governments, and of Hellenism, whatever you want to call it, is to be bound to Jesus Christ. There is no middle ground. It really is one or the other in the biblical sense. You've got life and you've got death. So it's important not to do what the ESV translators did and to artificially insert a middleman, because it's clear that the group of people who translated this Bible believe that this letter was written during Paul's imprisonment, one of them, and that that is the lens from which you have to interpret this this text. I mean, this is proof. This is proof that translation is inherently interpretation, right? And that's what we have to break, because these are two very different concepts, where you have Christ is bound by chains, not by human chains, but by divine chains, by the chains of God's word. And he's calling the master of Onesimus to free Onesimus from human chains so that he can be bound to God's chains. This isn't how it's it comes across in the text. It comes across like Paul is in human chains because of his involvement with the gospel of Christ. But no, no, the gospel of Christ is what is imprisoning Paul. That's the point I want to make. And of course, this is related to stories we've heard all throughout the Bible. You can hear it most forcefully, of course, in the Exodus, where the Israelites are freed from the bondage of Pharaoh and the bondage of Egypt and are placed into the bondage of God. So this is important for us to understand. And as we Orthodox Christians, of course, enter into Great Lent. The reason why we have the fasting and we have all of these prohibitions 
on our behavior and our eating and our habits during this time is to take seriously the fact that we are not free. We are slaves of Jesus Christ. We are only free from human chains and of the death sentence of the Mosaic law. That's the extent to where our freedom goes. So with that, uh, I invite people, everybody, including myself, I'm attempting to be (laughs) much better about this, but during Lent, read the Bible as much as you can, memorize it as much as you can, and most importantly, live it. Challenge yourself to live it, because ultimately, that is what we will all be judged on at the last judgment, is whether we actually did what God commanded us to do, whether we actually did it. And to get context for that, the last two Sundays of the Triodian Gospels in the Orthodox Church, those Gospel readings of Judgment Sunday and of Forgiveness Sunday, that gives you the answer of what God expects from us. So, if you need more clarification, consult the last two scripture readings of the Triodian Gospels. To him be all glory forever and ever. Amen. This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network.